If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 2. As we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 2, beginning this morning in verse 12. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now we had read earlier this morning from Malachi chapter 3 in our Old Testament reading where the prophet Malachi had said, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Now we know from the history given to us in the Gospels that our Lord Jesus Christ came to the temple on many different occasions. We know how Mary and Joseph took him there while he was yet a baby. We know how when he was 12 years old, when his family had gone up to Jerusalem, how Jesus went to the temple and was reasoning with the teachers there in the temple. And we also find at different points in his ministry, during those three years of his ministry culminating in the Passion Week in Jerusalem, that he went up to the temple in Jerusalem. And he indeed was like a refiner's fire when he went to the temple. And so as we consider this account in John chapter 2 this morning of Jesus going to the temple, we'll, we'll consider it under three points. First, Jesus at the temple. Secondly, prophecies fulfilled. And then thirdly, faith falling short. Jesus at the temple, prophecies fulfilled, Faith falling short. So first of all, we have Jesus at the temple. Now in the time of Jesus, the temple at Jerusalem, this temple was the one that had been built by King Herod beginning in about the year 20 B.C. or so. And the construction on this temple complex actually continued until about A.D. 66, just 
before the time when the Romans came and laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Now, if we think about the, the history of the Jerusalem temple, we know certainly that the first temple in Jerusalem was that which had been built by Solomon and was destroyed by the Babylonians when Jerusalem fell to them around the year 586 B.C. The second temple was the one which had been built by the returning exiles during the days of, of Zerubbabel, as recorded in Ezra chapters 3 through 6. This was during the time in which the, the prophet Haggai was active in encouraging the builders to get back to work in building the temple. But this temple here to which Jesus came was the temple that had been built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great had become the king of Judea around 37 B.C., and the Jewish historian Josephus recounted how in the 18th year of his reign, Herod undertook to build the temple. He told the Jewish people about his intentions, he made preparations, and Josephus says he took away the old foundations, laid a new foundations, and built the temple then on this new foundation. The temple complex was huge, consisting of about 35 acres. And the largest area of this temple complex was called the Court of the Gentiles. And in the center of the Court of the Gentiles, center of the, the complex, was the sanctuary, consisting of, of three courts. The Court of the Women, then... More interior than that was the court of the uh, the court of Israel for circumcised Jewish men, and then uh, interior to that was the holy of holies. The court of the Gentiles, this outer place in the complex, was the one place in the temple at which the Gentiles could come to pray. And by the time of Jesus, the court of the Gentiles had become a marketplace full of money changers, and livestock. Now, for those who were coming out of town, this would have been quite a convenience. This was the place where you could buy your animals for sacrifice. Very convenient. If you're coming, uh, if you're a diaspora Jew who's coming from, from Rome to Jerusalem, you didn't have to bring a lamb with you all the way to Jerusalem. You could just show up in Jerusalem, buy yourself a lamb, and proceed for a sacrifice. This was also the place where you could get your money exchanged into uh, the Tyrian shekel, which would have been the closest thing in the first century to the Old Testament shekel, which was required by law uh, when a census was taken. And so in Jesus' day, this was how the business at the temple was conducted. And it was greatly convenient for those who were coming out of town. You didn't have to bring your own animal all the way from wherever you lived. You could just show up, bring out your money, buy your animal on site, and then proceed to the sacrifice. You might think of this temple complex as the uh, basically the first century temple equivalent of having an ATM on site for all of those pesky cash-only establishments. It greatly simplified what might have otherwise been a bit of a problem. But this solution to a problem was actually a greater problem in and of itself. This was because there was mission drift that had occurred in the temple precincts. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but what was happening there was actually interfering with that purpose. Jesus referred to the problem there in verse 16 as that of making his father's house a place of business. And Jesus' response to this situation is burned into the psyche of Christians as an example of righteous indignation. Maybe you've heard someone say, or maybe you yourself have been the one to say in an attempt to, to justify anger or strong action, well, Jesus made a whip and drove the money changers 
out of the temple. Jesus turned over the tables in the temple. And depending on the situation, of course, that appeal to Jesus' behavior in the temple may or may not be justified. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. Certainly, Jesus' indignation was righteous. But just because you claim that your anger about whatever issue is righteous indignation does not necessarily make it so. Your anger might be righteous or it might not be. But Jesus certainly was in his actions here. And perhaps one of the reasons why Jesus mixing it up with the merchandisers in the temple is so well known and so well ingrained into our minds as Christians is because we read about Jesus mixing it up in the temple in all four Gospels. Now the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those Gospels we read about Jesus driving out those who were buying and selling and overturning the tables of the money changers during the Passion Week, during uh, between the times of what we think of as Palm Sunday and, and Good Friday, that last week uh, before Jesus was crucified. This was one of the big events in Jerusalem that week. In the Gospel of John, however, we read about Jesus driving out the money changers and so on right at the beginning of his earthly ministry, right after his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. And as John uh, paints the picture for us and sets the context there in verses 12 through 14, it seems pretty clear that he intends for us to understand that this event does in fact happen at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so just how are we supposed to put all of this together? And I think the answer is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are describing one event near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and that John is describing a different event near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, obviously, all four Gospels describe something similar happening. Jesus goes into the temple and goes after the merchandisers. He turns over the tables and drives people and or animals out of the temple. But beyond the basic level, there are some noteworthy differences between that which is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke and what John records here, it points to, points to these being two separate events. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one at the end. Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount Jesus as quoting that Old Testament scripture, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and then telling them that they have turned it into a robber's den. You don't find that here in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount that. John, we have something different here. Here in John, he says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And what's also interesting is that you see different responses to Jesus on, on both occasions. In Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' attack on the merchandisers leads the chief priests and the elders to ask him by what authority he is doing these things. And in those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, Jesus proceeds to ask them a question, also about authority. He says, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And then if you recall, the, the chief priests and the elders are unable to answer the question because if they said, from heaven, then Jesus would say, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you listen? And if the chief priests and elders were to say, well, the authority of John the Baptist was just, just from man. He wasn't really a prophet. Then they had a problem of a mob coming after them. They thought they would be stoned to death and killed if they had said that, John's authority was, was merely from men and not from heaven. And so you can find that account in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, and then Luke chapters 19 and 20. All, all three Synoptic Gospels paint that picture during the Passion Week. But we find something very different going on here in John. Again, it points to a, a different event. 
Here Jesus drives out the merchandisers, overturns the table, and the Jews ask him for a sign. They say, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? The ESV uh, renders it uh, very, uh, very literally and helpfully here. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They, they ask for a sign. In the Synoptic Gospels, they ask what Jesus' authority was. Here, specifically, they're asking, what sign do you show us? And they're implicitly, though, asking about his authority, believing he could show them a sign, then that must mean he has the authority to drive these things out. Jesus answers here in verse 19, saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They ask for a sign, and Jesus gives them a sign. He says, if you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. Now, we'll speak a little bit more in a few minutes here about what he means, but the point here is to emphasize that the Synoptic Gospels give us one cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry, and John gives us another, that these are, two, these are two separate events. And I would also add that even though the synoptic gospels do not record this account of Jesus cleansing the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry, nevertheless, they do pro- provide corroborating evidence as to the event. In both Matthew and Mark, we find it recorded that at the trial of Jesus, as those witnesses were, were coming forward to try to put him to death, there were some who came and said, we heard him say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, Matthew and Mark don't, don't provide the historical event at which Jesus said something along those lines, but nevertheless, there are witnesses who come forward and say, we, we heard him say it. And nevertheless, their report of it was a little bit garbled. That wasn't exactly what Jesus said. He didn't say, I am able to destroy the temple. He said, You destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. But nevertheless, they were drawing off of something that Jesus had said. And you see this coming up again in the crucifixion accounts in Matthew and Mark. And we read that crucifixion account in Mark uh, chapter 15 together this morning. As Jesus was there on the cross, those people came along who were hurling abuse at him, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Again, their understanding of what Jesus had actually said was a little bit garbled. Jesus didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. He said if his opponents destroyed the temple, he would raise it in three days. And so, and so even though Matthew and Mark don't give us this episode at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, nevertheless, they provide evidence that, that it occurred. There were people... Uh, There at the crucifixion and at the trial of Jesus who could remember back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and say, "We we heard him say that he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And so the there are similarities in the events but noteworthy differences as well. But let's focus in here though. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he why does he drive out these these money changers? Why does he go to the trouble of making a whip and doing all of this? He does it because they are corrupting the purpose for which his father's house was built. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of worship. Buying and selling is fine in its place. There's nothing wrong with buying an animal for sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with getting your money exchanged so that you can have a shekel to pay the temple tax. That's all fine. The problem comes, however... When those activities are taken out of their proper sphere and put into a place where they do not belong so as to interfere with that which is far more important, prayer 
and the worship of God. God the Father's house was not to be a place of business. His house was to be a house of worship. And I think there are several implications which might stem from this, but this morning I want to focus on on one, and that is that the worship of God must be given its rightful due and must be guarded from all encroachments. And one way of doing this is to be careful with regard to what happens here in the local church when we gather together on the Lord's Day, to be mindful of what we're doing when we gather together. Why are we here? Why do we gather together week by week? According to Hebrews 10.25, we're supposed to be gathering together so as to encourage one another toward love and good deeds. We're supposed to be gathering, we read in the New Testament epistles, so as to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why do we do this? According to Colossians 3.16, we're to be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Likewise, we're we're to pray, we're to ask for God's help and God's blessing. We're to ask for the forgiveness for our sins. We, we celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are marks and badges of our Christian profession and serve to strengthen us in the faith. Paul's words to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13 and following demonstrate how the church is to hear the word of God publicly read and that there's to be exhortation and teaching. Why? I think it's noteworthy to consider what Paul says at the closing of that passage in 1 Timothy 4. As he says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for if you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. In other words, these are the ways and means by which we are brought to salvation and by which we are preserved in our salvation. These are the means by which We are taught all that Christ has commanded us so that we may walk in his ways. This is important. This is most important. And therefore, it must not be crowded out by other things that are are less important. And so since the the church, as the body of Christ, is is called the the temple, and also, 1 Timothy 3.15, called the household of God, it is essential that we, as the temple, as the God's household as Christ's church fulfill the purpose for which we are called into existence, that we ourselves grow in Christ and that we ourselves declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to keep the gospel central. And in keeping the gospel central, that means that we also have to be mindful that we keep out those other things that might sneak in and distract us from what we must be about. When a church becomes all about politics or all about sociology or all about social services or all about any number of other things that may be fine and appropriate in their right place, if those things become central, if those things become the main thing, there's a problem that has occurred. Certainly God's word instructs us as to how we ought to think about these various disciplines or about various aspects of our lives, and it is appropriate in context to address them. But the problem comes when any one of those things displaces the Word of God and the worship of God. If that ever happens, then we have fallen into the same kind of trap that the Jewish people in Jesus' day had fallen into when they had 
given over a part of God the Father's house for the purpose of business. Now, just like business is a legitimate enterprise in and of itself, so also politics and sociology and social services and all of those things have their own proper place. But here in the temple, we have to concern ourselves with the things of God. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to keep the gospel central and the preaching and teaching of the word of God central. And so may God help us in doing just that. And this brings us then to our second point, which is prophecies fulfilled. And we see in verse 17 how Jesus' disciples observed his behavior and they remembered that it was written in Scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is a quotation of Psalm 69, 9. And that entire verse reads, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now that verse is messianic through and through. The first part of Psalm 69, 9 is quoted here in reference to Jesus' actions in the temple. And the disciples saw Jesus throwing out the merchandisers and they put two and two together. They had heard about someone somewhere who was consumed with zeal for God's house. Where did they hear that? They heard that in the Psalms. The author of Psalm 69 was, was David. And certainly he was consumed with zeal for God's house. He wanted to build the temple but was denied the opportunity to build it. But Psalm 69.9 is not just about David. It's pointing beyond David to the greatest son of David, the Messiah who was to come. The disciples saw the, the zeal of Jesus for the temple and they remembered this scripture. And they justly concluded in this way that Jesus had fulfilled the scripture and that this scripture was pointing to him. Jesus was concerned about what went on in the house of God and he was zealously concerned in this regard. And then that second part of Psalm 69.9 is quoted by Paul in Romans 15.3 where he says, For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Jesus bore the reproaches of those who had reproached his Father. The point is, that Psalm 69.9 is messianic, and Jesus fulfilled this scripture. And when the disciples remembered this scripture and saw it being fulfilled in Jesus, this no doubt served to strengthen their conviction that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed the one whom Moses and the prophets had written about, that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Even as we saw back in chapter 1 that Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel had uh, respectively confessed their faith in Jesus when they had first come to know him, that, that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And these disciples saw these prophecies of Old Testament scripture fulfilled in real time before them, and their faith was, was no doubt strengthened and built up when, when they see the one whom they already believe to be the Messiah actually doing messianic actions. And moreover, there is another prophecy which we read about here in this text, which was later fulfilled by Jesus. Now, this was not a prophecy uh, particularly of an Old Testament scripture, but rather a prophecy by Jesus himself. That prophecy was his response to the demand for a sign which was given by the Jews. The Jews see what he's doing, and they, interestingly enough, they don't attack him. They don't put him out of the temple. They had security that they could have done that. But 
they're willing to they're willing to engage with him, find out what's going on. They were at least theoretically open to discussion that this man might just be a prophet who's been sent from God. So they asked for a sign so that they could verify whether or not he was a prophet, whether or not he had such authority. Now Jesus obviously could have performed a miracle on site to show his authority. But what we notice here and all throughout the Gospels is that this is not the way that Jesus pursued his ministry. He was not one to perform signs just to satisfy the whims of others. You may recall that occasion, Mark chapter 12, when some of the scribes and Pharisees came to him and desired to see a sign. And Jesus responded and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we all know that Jesus did miracles, and we know that John's purpose in recording these events and the miracles that Jesus did was so that we would believe in Jesus and have eternal life by trusting in him. But the one thing that Jesus is not is a magician on demand. We read about those who were mocking him as he was hanging on the cross and said, let him come down and we will believe in him. But again, Jesus is not an on-demand magician. He has great power. He did and still does great works. But he's not a genie. He does works for his own purposes, not to satisfy the curiosity of the fickle crowds in Judea and Galilee, not to satisfy the desires of crowds or individuals today. He's the Son of God, and his agenda is to do the will of the Father. But even though he's not going to satisfy the craving of their minds and do some miracle right then and there to satisfy their desires, he is willing to engage. He does offer them a sign, a sign that he would perform, just like he later announced this sign of Jonah. While he did refuse to put on a magic show to dazzle the crowd, he did announce this sign that he would show that he was within his rights to be doing what he was doing in the temple. They want to know, who, who gives you this right to do what you're doing? What sign can you show us to verify that, that you're legitimate in throwing these people out of the temple? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now obviously the Jews don't understand this statement. So many of the things that Jesus said were hard to understand. Some were figures of speech, some uh, were such as they contained uh, elements of symbolism. Some of the statements that Jesus made were literally true, but nevertheless difficult to decipher at the time. Even his disciples didn't often understand what he was talking about. And we shouldn't think that if you and I had been there, we would have done any better in terms of understanding what Jesus was talking about. My granny used to be very open about her lack of understanding symbolism, and she would say, I must have been absent from school on the day they talked about symbolism. Maybe granny wasn't the only one who was absent from school on that day. You might recall in Matthew 16, Jesus had warned the disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples immediately began talking about the fact that Jesus must be saying this because we didn't bring any bread. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about bread. He asked them a bunch of questions and made them think a little bit before they finally realized, oh, 
By talking about leaven, Jesus is talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus speaks here, I would say, literally. But it's a literal that is pretty opaque. Jesus is there in the physical temple. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews think he's talking about the physical stone temple there. And they say, they say whoa, 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 wait a minute. It took us 46 years to build this. How are you going to do it in three days? They didn't understand that Jesus was speaking about a different kind of temple, which was nevertheless a true temple, even the truest temple. And it seems evident on the basis of verse 22 that even his disciples didn't understand what was going on in the statement. They remembered what he said, and then after he was raised from the dead... The puzzles of the piece, uh, the pieces of the puzzle started uh, to fall together a little bit more. And as a result, we're told that they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed what Christ had told them, that he would rise from the dead. And they believed the collective Old Testament witness that the Christ would die and that he would rise again. In other words, their faith that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, was strengthened. When they saw Christ raised from the dead, they, they remember that he had said this. And they, they believed. They were, they were strengthened in that. They already believed. We've seen evidence and testimony of that. But they didn't understand everything about him. And then, after the resurrection, they put some more of the pieces together. And their faith is, is built up even more. And I would suggest to you that the disposition and the experience of the disciples here in this passage is a model for us all. Now, obviously, all of us who are Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. And we have John's explicit testimony here that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And so we're not baffled or confused by this statement in the same way that the disciples were. We understand what's going on here. However, there are some things which Jesus said which we do not yet fully understand. There are some things in the Word of God which we do not fully yet understand. And it seems to me, therefore, that we find ourselves in the position of these disciples. We believe in Jesus, but we don't fully understand everything that He has said. We don't fully understand everything the Spirit has recorded for us in the Word. And when you find yourself in that position, when I find myself in that position, we need to do what these disciples did. They stuck with Jesus and walked with Him and continued to trust him even when they didn't understand what he was talking about. They may well have been baffled, but what they didn't do was just stand up and arrogantly say, that doesn't make sense to me. I thought you were the Messiah, but because I can't wrap my mind around what you just said, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm done. These disciples did not do that. They stuck with Jesus and walked with him, even when they didn't fully understand now, Lord willing, when we get to John chapter 6, we'll see some people who more or less did this very thing. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, and they said, we're done. We're walking away. That's not what happened here. Instead, it is almost as if they filed the words of Jesus away in their mind, and then when Jesus rose from the dead, they said, wait a minute. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Now I get it. Now, Christian friends, our position is often the same as theirs. We believe in Jesus, 
And we trust in his word and the totality of the scriptures. There's a lot there that we don't yet understand. And so, friend, don't be disturbed when you find yourself there. Be willing to trust in Jesus, even when you can't quite nail down everything in your own mind. Someday, it will all make sense. Sometimes, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and as the Lord grows us and sanctifies us, sometimes some of those pieces start falling together, even here in this life. Someday it might be that light will come when we understand a doctrine or a passage of Scripture that seems very dark and obscure to us right now. Sometimes that experience might be delayed until the life of the world to come when we go to be with Christ. And I think just one example of this is uh, with respect to our understanding of the end times. Right now we, we take the different texts of Scripture related to Christ's return and we put, together, put them together the best that we can. And we should do that. But when Christ returns, the light bulb will flash in our mind and we'll be like, oh, that's how it was all going to come together. That's how all of these scripture pieces fit together. And we will rejoice in Christ and we'll understand more what he has said to us. And so my counsel to you is to keep trusting, keep following him. Don't walk away because your finite mind can't understand everything that God has said to us. And the same is true with respect to God's providential dealings in our lives. We know that the scripture says in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But there are a lot of times here in this world when we don't see and understand how this can practically be true. We see things working and sometimes... It seems like all things are working for our demise or that all things are not working out for our good. But friend, be patient and be willing to wait upon the Lord. Because here in this world, as Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. May God strengthen us then in that. But before we move on to point number three, we do need to notice also here the great significance of Jesus calling his body the temple you, uh, you notice uh, the way John puts it there in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was calling his body the temple. And this is true. It, his body was actually the temple, even in a fuller and truer sense than the physical temple was the temple. The temple was the place at which God gave a token of his presence to dwell among his people. But our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've already seen here in John, is the Word made flesh. He is, as Paul would say, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell bodily. In the incarnation, the Son of God himself was tabernacling among his people. A truer temple there never was than the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the the significance of him referring to himself as the temple. And so... As we find there in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us in an even fuller way than God was sending a cloud on the tabernacle in the Old Testament time. Christ was himself, God in the flesh, the true temple among his people. And as we look then to the 
The final verses of chapter 2, we come to our third point, which is faith falling short. And we read there in verses 23 through 25 about these, these people who were observing these miracles as Jesus was doing, as he was there in Jerusalem during the Passover. They believed in Jesus, but yet we read that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now let's think about this. There were people there in Jerusalem who saw the miracles that that he was doing. We don't know the specific ones that he was performing. John doesn't go into detail. But they they saw what he was doing and they they believed in some sense that he was the Messiah. They thought that what he was doing matched up with what the prophets had said that the Messiah would do. But yet we find that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He didn't bring them into close intimacy with him as he had done for the disciples. Why? Well, John gives us a reason why. Because he knew what was in man. He was able to, to see through their belief, or their level of belief, and see that this was only a temporary faith. A faith that would not last. It was, as it were, an intellectual faith that did not actually reach the heart. And we need to be mindful of this. Mindful that such a condition exists. Mindful that there is such a faith that does not save. And Jesus speaks explicitly about this in the parable of the sower. One of the seeds that was sown was the seed that fell on the rocky soil. And Jesus said that that seed sprouted up quickly. It appeared to have life but it didn't last. It withered in the heat of the sun. And Jesus, as he explains that parable, he said that those are the ones who, when they hear the word, receive it immediately with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This is a real category of people, people who intellectually believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet do not believe in such a way as to be born again. Talk about the subject of being born again next week, Lord willing. It gets John 3. But these are people who have knowledge of the facts concerning Christ, and maybe they agree that those facts are true, but yet they don't actually trust in Christ to save them from their sins and to reconcile them to God. And the book of Hebrews warns us similarly about this same phenomenon. We read in Hebrews 10, 28 and 29, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is a frightening reality that there are some who, having outwardly and intellectually embraced Jesus, turn away from them, turn away from him. Turn away from Christ. And those who do so effectively trample underfoot the Son of God. And they effectively regard his blood as unclean. These are the ones who fall away when the going gets tough. This is the faith that falls short. This is faith that falls short of salvation. And this was, it seems, the faith that was in these crowds there at the Passover in Jerusalem. Knowing that such a faith is possible and knowing how dangerous it is, beloved, what do we do? 
What do we do when we recognize that there is this category of people out there who are like the seed that falls on the rocky soil? It sprouts up and looks like the rest of the crop, but when the sun comes out, it's fried, it's done. What must we do? I think the words of Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 are very helpful in this regard, where the writer says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have to pay attention, much closer attention, to what we have heard so that we don't gradually drift away from it. So we keep looking to Christ. We keep looking to the Scripture. We pay even closer attention to this gospel which we have heard and which we have professed Because we need to recognize that this was not merely a first century phenomenon. This has happened throughout the ages and even in our own day there are many who have drifted and are drifting away from the gospel that they have heard. And may God forbid that any in this room would be among the number of them. May we be those who cling to Christ and not be those who shrink back to destruction but rather we find in Hebrews 10.39, those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. May God himself strengthen us and help us in that. And if you're here today and you've never yet trusted in Christ, may today be the day of salvation for you. Look to him. Recognize that Jesus indeed fulfilled this sign. That they said, give us this sign that you have the authority to do these things in the temple. Jesus gave them the sign. He fulfilled the sign. He is the Christ, the Son of God. So look to him today. Believe that he is, in fact, the true temple. The Son of God in the flesh who came to die for sinners and to rise again to make us righteous. Turn away from your sins and believe in Christ today. Let's pray.